0: the goods scenario. Where are they all gone? Where are these people now? Where do these different characters wind up? Well, the robbers, having done what they set out to do, have collected their loot, then the spirit back into the rocks and bushes. They've gone to their hideout to divide up the spoils of their day's work and robbing and abusing travelers. The priests, the Levite, and each continued on their way to Jericho after overlooking the half-dead man that they passed on the side of the road. That traveler is recovering at an inn where the innkeeper has been entrusted with his care. He's been given money to pay for two days worth of care. He's been told he'll be reimbursed for whatever else he spends on the care of the individual. And the Samaritan has resumed his journey promising to return on the same road and settle up any bills that are due at the end. Where are we left? Where are we left? Where are you and I after hearing this story? Where are we along this road to Jericho? We listen to this story along with an unknown lawyer, the one who wants to know where his neighborly commitments begin and end, Together with the lawyer, we hear the command of Jesus go and do likewise. We're given as an example of neighborliness this this Samaritan who, at inconvenience and risk to himself, helps a half dead stranger. Now, this story, on one level, seems to open the floodgates of (coughs) care and to drown us between a flood of responsibility that we could not possibly. Meet. Truth to tell, we have needy neighbors in every direction, don't we? You see them all the time. They're all around you. You meet them every day. You can't go anywhere without seeing them. Come sit at the church office sometime. Martha meets them on a regular basis. You can put a sign on the door. Help is available. Mondays and Tuesdays only. So many people come to help, just can meet all of their needs and still get all the work done. On the sign also says financial aid is available, limited amounts, Monday is Tuesday, until the money runs out. Well, if the money is made available on the first day of the month, it's usually gone by the fourth day of the month. Not a lot of the money, but there's also a huge demand for the money. Flood time of people out there needing, asking for, begging for our help. What can we do about all of this? How can we keep our souls from turning sour in the face of all this demand, all of this need that's around us? How can we keep our minds from going numb and confronted with all this problem? Because there's more there than we can deal with. Is there a way of us meeting this without compassion to keep sitting in? Because well, you know good and well, as I do, that Bill Gates and Elon Musk and all the other billionaires in the whole world who pool their money and bankrupt themselves and still not meet the needs that we are facing. There's more need than there is money. There's more need than there is compassion. And it's very easy to look at these people and to think to yourself, after a few encounters, you can do better if you would. Part of this is your own fault. Why don't you stir yourself up? Job market's hot. Go get a job. You bum, I'll come here if I'm around here asking for help, but I'm up here working. You can lay around good for nothing, I'll come here sleeping late and sit in front of a Walmart with a sign and say anything would help. I can hold up a sign and say the same thing. I don't need to hold up a sign that says I will, I will work for food. I do work for food. It's easy to adopt that kind of attitude. And yet Jesus says, Be like the Samaritan. Go and do life by. How do we accomplish that in the face of all the needs that confront us? What did the Samaritan do? Well, first, the Samaritan sees the wounded traveler. He sees it. Second of all, he's moved to pity. And then he does what he can. Each of these steps is essential if the Samaritan is going to prove compassionate and effective. And it provides us an example to follow. So let's consider each of these steps. First of all, the Samaritan sees the wounded travel. Very easy when you see people that need to turn your eyes away. You don't want to look at things like that. It's not pleasant. They are not nice looking people. had a man come to the door of the church in Decatur one Sunday, asking for help. We invited him to stay to the and He said, You know, I don't smell very good. He was right, he didn't. We don't like to be around people like that. We don't want to see them. Their very sight offends us. They're ragged, they're dirty, they're sometimes riddled with disease. We just as soon sort of don't want to see them, but the Samaritan sees them. He does not turn his eyes away. He doesn't glance at the victim and then quickly look somewhere else. Nor does the Samaritan see the wounded traveler as an imposition say, well, can't do anything to you, buddy. Just step aside and I'll walk around you. He says to himself, he does not say to himself, chances are this guy is a Jew. Jews hate us. By the way, we hate Jews. So why should I have anything to do with him? Instead of seeing him as a Jew and himself as a Samaritan, the Samaritan sees a fellow human who is in need. The Samaritan recognizes the wounded traveler as a father who needs help. Down upon the broken one he gets, and he acknowledges the best, most important aspect of who he is. Not all the features which should be set aside, at least temporarily. He says, you and I have something in common both have needs. Your need is today. My need will come later, or it's already been. Both are people who have needs. So let's meet that level, those who have a need. And as a result, the Samaritan is moved with peace. Now the word that's used here is a very interesting word. It literally means moved to the depths of his bowels with compassion. He has a gut feeling. He feels that he's good, this is somebody that I need to do something about. There are all these reasons why I should not, but I feel something overwhelming within me that says you should do something about this situation. And I might say that the Samaritan feels for his broken traveler as deeply as it is possible for him to feel. So the Samaritan <coughs> recognizes the bond between himself and the stranger who's lying on the side of the road half a day Such a recognition comes at a cost, because the Samaritan identifies with the wounded stranger and, as far as he can, feels the other person's pain, feels the other person's abandonment, feels the other person's fear. The Samaritan, who's moved with pity all the way down to his gut, stands as a portrait of God. God, as he appears in the Hebrew Bible especially as God, as God appears in the prophets. The God of whom these prophets speak is not unmoved by human pain, and human sorrow, but somehow suffers along with the people. The sorrow felt by the people becomes the sorrow felt by God. The Samaritan's fellow feeling gives way to action. He does what he can to help. That turns out to be quite a bit <laughs> Enough to make the difference between life and death, I suppose. What he does at first is so not to anoint the traveler's wounds. He uses oil and wine. He uses oil and wine. Elements that play an important role in Jewish worship, which have been withheld. They, they had at that time and anoints the man's wounds with it. The priests of the Levite handle kind of all in mind later. But here's the Samaritan handling them in a very important and personal way. The Samaritan, someone hated by the Jews, is engaging in true worship because he's engaging in using these elements to help others, not to make a mere gesture. He does not pour them out on the altar in the temple. He pours them out on the altar of the, the broken body a fellow human being. Most people who travel that steep and curvaceous road that leads down from Jerusalem on the mountain to Jericho and the valley did it on foot. But this Samaritan is fortunate. He has an animal, a mount, perhaps a donkey. He puts the wounded stranger on his donkey. He takes him. Slow trip to the inn. Once there, he opens his wallet, he gives the innkeeper a significant sum of money, two days' wages for a working man, proceeds to return and cover whatever further expenses incurred. Samaritan recognizes what must be done. He doesn't hesitate to put his resources to use. Clearly, he's the right person, in the right place, at the right time. In a world where we have needy direction, needy neighbors in every direction. Where we have the possibility, numbness of soul, fatigue of compassion, readily sitting in. Where it's easy to look on the dark side and reject the humanity of those who are in need. The actions of the Samaritan provide us with a pattern we could follow. First of all, we must see wounded strangers. You can't dismiss this person or rationalize their suffering. You must in a real way recognize the suffering. You have to see the reality of what's before us. That's not easy. Especially because in today's world we're bombarded with too many images of all kinds. It becomes difficult to take any of them seriously. Only few of us can imagine. Our attention being so bombarded, as we think back only a few years, only a few circumstances that at most can find a deep root in our minds, but they can lead us to recognize strangers that are real and have our need, have real need around us. But a few is all we need to recognize. If we truly see the wounded in this world, then will be moved to pity. We will feel their situation in our hearts, and in our inmost being. We'll have a gut feeling for them as well. Now we can't do this often. We lack the capacity. We wear ourselves out. We outrun our own resources. But we can do this on occasion. And doing so will enable us to be stronger to do it the next time. We can't help everybody, but you can help somebody. When this happens, we're not acting on the basis of obligation or of guilt or compulsion, but instead we're following the lead of true compassion, we felt deep down, motivating us to do what we can, for who we can, when we can. Our response will have in it something of the nature of God. This is the way that God is. On the basis of the seeing and feeling take action that's worth taking. We do that without again We do what we can to help in the moment and to help in a real and positive way. This means putting our resources to intelligent use and recognizing that we have more to offer than we realize at first. We we'll do what we can with what we have for those who, who we can help. And when we may discover ourselves to be someone who's the right person, the right place, The right time. When Jesus closes the parable of this narrative by saying, go and do likewise, he's not imposing a strict legalistic way of responding to people in need. His intention is to be far more larger and far more practical. He's intending to give us something that will apply to countless circumstances not to a narrow set of needs. We are truly to see somebody, somebody in need. We won't be able to consider every needy person, but we can recognize somebody. The sight of that person will lead us to compassionate action, not an ob- obligation or guilt. not says, I'm doing this because I have to do it, or ought to do it, but because we know we can do it. And when we move to pity, because we will be identifying with that person at the deepest level of our being, need. Needing to action, what we truly see and truly feel, it's reason to believe that we can use our resources, use them well in God's name. Thus, we'll find that by God's grace, we're that good Samaritan, we're the one who's in the right place, the right moment, at the right time. And when the time comes, us will ask ourselves the question, who is our neighbor? We will have a clear guide to follow in making our response. Where are you on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho? Who do you see? Who's your neighbor? Let us pray. Open our eyes. Let us see. Let us make a difference wherever we can. Let us not grow weary.